Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, I speak with Tashin, for whom relating to self is about making a home of his own experience. Enjoy. Hey, Tashin, welcome to the Relating to Self podcast. Thanks for having me, friend. So you are, in your own words, an extremely online pilgrim wandering this precious world for the benefit of all beings. And you have three main endeavors, spreading love, following your curiosity, and empowering others. I would also, if that's okay with you, love to hear just maybe a bit about your name, because Tashin is a very uncommon name, and I'm curious about that. Sure. Uh, well, my given name is Michael Fogelman. Uh, that was the name my parents gave me, but in 2018, I took Bodhisattva vows with Shinzen Young and my teacher, Soryu For All, and uh, received the name Tashin, or since you're in Japan, Tashin is the Japanese pronunciation. I tend to sort of mispronounce it myself as an American, uh, but uh, it means reach truth or achieve truth or achieve wisdom. The second character of the name is the first character of Shinzen's name, and uh, that's in the tradition, one of the traditions he trained in in Shingon Buddhism, they that's how they did Dharma names. And then your teacher would pick the other character of your name. And I specifically asked Soryu, my teacher, to pick the first character of my name. The first character would be on its own in Japanese, Tatsu. But uh, with the Shin sound, it becomes Tashin. So uh, that's my name. Yep. Wonderful. Thank you. And just for people who have no idea about this, like myself, what exactly does it mean to take a bodhisattva vow? Ah, uh, yes. Um, well, that comes from Buddhism and specifically the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. There's sort of three major eras of Buddhism. Historically, there was, uh, this is an oversimplification, but there's Theravadan Buddhism, which is the oldest extant branch of Buddhism. And then there's there was Mahayana Buddhism, and then there's also Vajrayana Buddhism. And so the Bodhisattva vows come from the second era, as it were, Mahayana Buddhism. And um, I also took the five ethical precepts, which the Theravadan Buddhists had. And uh, so that's that's sort of like ethical, not exactly rules or regulations, but maybe more like guidelines or standards that you strive to uphold. Uh, and then the Bodhisattva vows are these vast, open-ended commitments to, well, there's four of them. And it's, uh, the first one is to knowing that there are numberless beings, you vow to free them or liberate them. And then the second one is uh, greed, hatred, and ignorance without end. So sort of the three poisons in Theravadan Buddhism, you vow to break them or end them. And gates of truth without end, 
you vow to master them. And then uh, the Buddha way, without compare, the path of becoming a Buddha, you might say, you vow to complete it. And so these are these vast, grand, spiritually ambitious vows that uh, when I took it, I had, you know, immense trepidation about and was afraid of what, what is it that I'm signing up for and how do I do it? Um, one, one simple way to look at it, this is one of the ways that I look at it, not the only one, but one of them is just that you vow to be of service, that you vow to be of benefit with your time on this planet. And uh, that's that was one of the ways that helped me to be willing to take those vows, was just to see it that simply of, okay, my time and energy is for being of benefit. And that seems like a good thing to strive for. So yeah, that's the Bodhisattva mm. vows. Yeah, thank you so much. It's interesting because, well, Buddhism, or let's say some of the concepts of Buddhism do pop up on this podcast quite regularly. People refer to them. And it always comes from a place of like, you know, having read a bit about it or heard about it from people. But I think this is the first time I'm having a conversation with an actual Buddhist. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm super curious to see how that has translated into how you relate to yourself. So my first question is always the same. When you hear these words relating to self, what is it that that means to you? Hmm. Two things come to mind. The first is, in the context of what we've been discussing, telling a kind of story about myself, telling myself and others a narrative or an account of who I am and what my qualities are and what my intentions are and what my purpose with my life is. Uh, each of us are always telling ourselves and others stories about ourselves and other people and society and the world. And that could be an unconscious thing that we just receive the stories other people tell about us or receive the stories that we hear about the world and repeat those. I didn't really like the stories that I heard about the world. I didn't like the stories that I heard about humanity or our society. And I didn't like the stories that people wanted to tell about me, about what I might do with my life. You know, for example, the career paths that I was offered or uh, directions that people suggested, the sort of well-worn trails that I saw other people walking down. They didn't appeal to me. Uh, so in a way, I've been engaged for a long time with trying to find a story about myself and my relationship to the world that fits, uh, that fits what's in my heart. And it's just a story, you know, it's just words. It's, uh, you know, I'm reading a novel right now, and it's so interesting to consider the reality of a novel, right? It's ink on a page, and someone imagined it and then wrote it down. But when we read a novel, it has a kind of reality for us where it impacts us and affects us and changes how we see ourselves and others. And so for this reason, it's, I think, important to tell a good story about ourselves and the world, even though we know it's similar to ink on a page in a novel. It's not complete. Uh, you know, I, my life isn't done yet. Um, the, I read Plutarch's Lives, some excerpts of it a long time ago, and in the life of Solon, uh, Solon says to a king, I believe, that you couldn't judge 
whether a man was happy until after he died. So in that way, you know, after I die, like anyone else, then you can really tell a story about who I was and what the value of my life was. But sort of in media res, in the middle of the story, in the middle of my life, it's I found it useful to try to come to some kind of account of who I am and what I want to do with my life that guides me. And so what you read as the introduction for who I am is the best story that I've found so far about who I am. You know, it has a name and a sort of career pilgrim and uh, talks about these endeavors that I have, uh, the three sort of pillars of my life. And then it also talks about what the purpose is to benefit all beings. The, those are sort of the components of that story. And uh, it's a good story. I feel satisfied with it. Uh, I'm sure it will change in time, but it's taken uh, years to be able to tell a story with that kind of succinctness about who I am and why I'm living my life, really. So that's the first thing, is telling a story about who I am. I think there's also just something that's beyond that, that is much more moment-to-moment -moment and experiential, the way that I relate to moving through the world and perceiving my experience and behaving in response to what's present for me. This is something that's more difficult to talk about. It's harder to put words to it. It's harder to put ink on a page to describe it. It's been a, a long-term endeavor of mine to strive to put words to these things. I try to find words that satisfy me to describe things that are difficult to talk about, but uh, it's it's somewhat difficult intrinsically. And so um, I'd say that over time, I've cultivated a relationship to my moment-to-moment -moment experience that, uh, yeah, in a way is is like making a home of my experience where, you know, people put a lot of effort into decorating their homes and how do I want to arrange things and how do I want to set things up? And I'm actually homeless. I don't, I don't have a home. I, I wander from place to place. I have a legal address, but, uh, but I, I effectively am homeless. I wander from place to place, but I notice with the people that I stay with, they, you know, tend to decorate their homes. And in the same way, I've done something like that with my moment to moment experience, built a relationship with my body and my mind and uh, my perception that feels very much my own. Wow, what a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. There's so much to dive into here. Um, let's start with the first telling yourself a story about yourself, and at the same time telling the world a story about yourself. I'm, I'm curious what you think about this spectrum of self-discovery or like, you know, um, finding out who you are. People speak a lot about finding their purpose versus creating who you are. Because it sounds from, from what you were saying that this story is something you have crafted over time, something that you've intentionally designed. And so I guess it almost comes to the same question um, when thinking about mathematics, you know, is it is it something you discover or is it something you create, like the Platonians against the the others? And so I'm I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that spectrum. I'm not necessarily asking you to decide where you are or what the nature of things is, but I would love to hear you speak about that. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, it's an important question, and one that I wrestle with quite a bit in this journey of discovering who I am and trying to speak about that usefully. Uh, my teacher, Soryu Foral, would speak about vows, which came to him through, uh, I believe, Embedkar Buddhism, uh, which is a, a kind of Mahayana Buddhism that's based in India, um, that he trained in that system for a while. And vows is a Mahayana Buddhist concept that predated Ambedkar Buddhism and his teacher there, but I believe that's how he encountered it. And uh, vow is a kind of, it's an English translation of the Japanese word Sagan. And uh, there's a, I believe a Sanskrit word as well that I'm not recalling at this moment, but um, that should be enough to look it up if someone's interested. But he, he sort of translated into English as vow. I have been enjoying the word gift for this concept, but in any case, the way that he talked about a vow was that it's a kind of meeting between you and the world where you're, it's not that you create your own life purpose or that someone like a God or the universe preordains your life purpose, but instead who you are and your desires and your skills and your circumstances meet the world and its needs and it's what it's asking of you. And so there's a, almost a dialogue there between you and the world. It's um, something that I found it useful to frame this as, is something that's emergent. Uh, it's not uh, like a checkbox that you either check off or you don't. Instead, you are in constant dialogue with your surroundings and the people that you know and the circumstances you find yourself in and the world and uh, that leads to really iteratively discovering this rather than uncovering something that was already there. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I like this idea of a, a dialogue, a conversation with the world, like a tension field between what you have been given, you know, and, and what exists outside of you. I'm, I'm curious about one thing, because when I asked you the question, you started your answer with my teacher would say, and I've been thinking a lot about this concept of my relationship to other people in this world. And I've come to the conclusion that most of the relationship that I have with other people is actually relating to self mm. in the sense that these people exist as parts inside of me. I have dear friends that I think a lot about and that I have conversations with in my mind, so to speak. I don't often get to spend time with them. And so it feels like almost 90% of the time I spend with them is actually time spent with myself inside of my head, talking to the part of me that I believe represents this friend. Mm. And I'm curious if, if you would say that that's accurate for you as when you say something like my teacher would say, is this then you speaking from the part of you that represents your teacher? Mm. That's an interesting framing. I, I think it is. Uh, it's certainly a paraphrase of what I learned from the real person who's not with us in this conversation. Uh, he wouldn't necessarily use the exact words that I did just now to describe this concept. And I found my own words for describing words that I know I never heard him speak about this concept. Um, 
he's, I've been thinking about this recently. Hmm. So to zoom out a little bit, I, I have a practice of um, when I meet someone, which I do often in my journeys in the physical world and also the journeys in the digital world. I have a practice of, on the one hand, watching very closely to see if there's something I can receive from them and learn from them, really in a way, letting them be a teacher to me and then absorbing that wisdom and integrating into my life, being a student of everyone that I learn in a way. Um, and then also on the other hand, symmetrically being willing to offer something to support them, to aid them if I can. Now that, that might not be requested, it might not be useful, but I have to be willing to help if asked or uh, I'm able to. And so um, in, in that way, there's a um, both a, a humility that I can learn something from someone and a, and a clarity that I might be able to benefit um, that's, that's um, sort of egalitarian, right? I'm not putting myself below anyone and I'm not putting myself above anyone, ideally. And um, that's how I try to hold it. And so I've been reflecting recently on people who have made a disproportionate influence on me. Uh, sort of ranking who's had an influence on me, I suppose you could say, because so many people have an influence on me. Really, ideally, you know, I, I'm learning from you in this conversation, for example, and from having met you recently and that kind of thing. Um, but some people influence, influence us more and less. And so I was thinking, who is it that's influenced me the most? And um, absolutely at the top, it has to be my parents because they gave me this life and this body uh, and, and raised me and sort of forged me in my childhood. And uh, for that, I'm extremely grateful. Uh, and then in my adult life, I think that there's probably two people uh, who've had uh, the biggest impact on me. And the the largest one has, has probably been my teacher, Soryu. Um, I trained with him for much of my 20s. I'm now 31 and uh, I'm not training with him currently, I'm out in the world being of service, but uh, he's really with me every day uh, or that influence is with me every day. I experience it actually quite um, somatically where it feels like his presence or energy are in my body. Uh, I've described this different ways at different times, but you know, I mean, one, one sort of practical way to look at it is that uh, when you work with someone that closely in sort of a spiritual context, you you could look at it as your nervous systems in training to each other uh, and and sort of digesting that. And uh, that certainly happened for me. I might describe it elsewhere in other language, but that's that's sort of a way that makes sense to most people to understand what's happening there. So he's he's very present almost in my body, but you know, I, also in my mind. Uh, I heard him give many, many talks. I, I wrote a book with him. Uh, you know, I worked with him collaboratively in lots of projects. And so um, I've spent quite a bit of time with him. And yeah, there's a there's a kind of voice in my head that matches to things that I've heard him say. And I've been very influenced by him. Yeah, I think it's really beautiful the way you bring the body into this conversation. Um, I frame this very often as in, well, basically the same thing you were saying earlier about yourself, this Relating to self is telling yourself a story about yourself. And in that way, I think all the people I know, all the people I meet, are in some way stories in my head now. And 
that feels a bit disembodied sometimes. And I really love this idea that because you spend a lot of time with someone, your nervous system regulates with them in a certain way, and then you carry that with you. And I've, I've had experiences like these as well, in the sense that, you know, some of the people you spend time with, you just feel a groundedness and a calmness in your body that maybe then resets your expectations of what's possible within your own body. And yeah, thank you for naming that. That's beautiful. Okay. Also, the thing you said about parents. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, I interrupted I you, but I, I just wanted to say that uh, my experience of telling a story is that it's in this way that we've been talking about is, um, yes, probably first and foremost, mental, intellectual, verbal, conceptual, but the process of finding a story that resonates feels very embodied for me and, and specifically uh, connected to the heart of what makes me feel things and feel uh, inspired and energized and uh, other kind of related emotions that um, almost a sense of coming home. Um, it's like, yeah, yes, this is a story that makes sense emotionally. So not only is it conceptually sort of mm -hmm. well-built, but that actually fits my uh, experience on that level. So um, it's, it definitely is mental, but I wouldn't say it's solely intellectual or uh, disembodied. Yeah, I like that. It, it kind of sounds almost now like there's um, some kind of a filtering mechanism because we meet so many people. Maybe the stories of the people that we mingle with that keep existing in ourselves are the ones that resonate in some way with this feeling of being home in your body. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's a beautiful idea. Never thought about it like this. And then I, I wonder if this relates to what you said earlier about parents, which is something I had never thought about either. Like your, you named your parents as your biggest influence or the biggest impact in your life. And yeah, I, I can totally see that. But the one thing that now I thought of is that your parents are the only ones that don't only give you stories, but also physical reality in the sense that, you know, you carry their genes. Mm. And, and so your body is a direct reflection of these people. And the... The impact of that, I guess, cannot be underestimated. Hmm. Let's go back to something you said earlier that I found fascinating that I've also been thinking about. You mentioned reading a novel and then, you know, thinking about the reality of the novel. As we go through the world, we, we meet people, we encounter situations and we create stories and we carry these stories with us. And I think a very similar process happens when we read a book or watch a movie. And I've been wondering recently if I should perhaps be as intentional with the story characters that I meet than with the actual people I meet, because these have real impact on my life. I, I notice myself, especially when I'm reading a, when I'm reading a book, these characters stay with me. Their reality is not just in the book, but is also in my mind. And, and the way they behave, the way they express themselves influences me. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that, or if you have, perhaps have a practice of this kind also, that you choose specific books or, or movies or stories that you want to feed yourself with and maybe exclude others. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot I could say here. I think it feels right to begin by setting some 
context of where and really when I arrive at this conversation from to answer this question. Uh, specifically, last month, I wrote a novella, a short story. It's about, I think, 36 pages is what it ended up being. I put a paywall on it, which I don't usually do for my projects uh, because it's extremely vulnerable and I want people to read it charitably. Uh, and I figure if someone's willing to pay $25 for it, then probably they'll read it charitably or at least try to. Um, but uh, that process of writing that book, I'm still digesting what happened there. Uh, it, it shifted my experience of writing and fiction and stories and also really reality um, in ways that I, th I think will take certainly longer than this podcast conversation to uh, sort out. I'm still chewing on this, but what I can say is, um, oh, how to put this? This makes perfect sense to me in my head and my heart, but is very strange. And I don't talk to people about these sorts of things very often. And uh, I haven't heard many people talk about it in, I've heard people talk about the pieces of this kind of puzzle, but not the whole gestalt of what it's like for me. Um, but I will try my best to speak about this and then answer your question. <laughs> um, first off, I suppose uh, it's useful to say that you can, you know, on a perceptual level, the second part of what I said to you earlier about how I relate to myself it's clear to me that you can um, make moves with your experience in the same way that you could learn a, a movement art, right? Like I know some Tai Chi, for example, or some Qigong, um, or, you know, I might learn weightlifting or this or that, right? You move your body in a specific way for a specific purpose. There are similar moves that are possible in our internal experience with our thoughts and our emotions and um, the way we breathe and other things. There's all these kind of internal levers that we can find. And, and one of the sort of classes of moves that I've found is what you believe about yourself in the world. And that's less static and fixed than I was certainly educated to believe. I was educated to believe there is a, a truth and there is a reality and there's a right way of looking at the world and you should read about it in books and learn what it is and then you will know it. Um, that was kind of the gestalt. And th there's a value to that, but that is also... Uh, a, a lens on seeing things, right? Um, so what I'm about to say is sort of an alternate lens that I'm not saying is true or complete. Um, it's it's certainly a deviation from you know what you might find on Wikipedia or in a university or something like that. But but it, it makes a kind of internal sense and is I found a very useful move, even sort of um, sidelining it's ontological status, you might say, whether it's true in reality, right? It's 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 useful for me as I go about my life. So I'll speak about it maybe in ways that sound like I'm making a truth claim. And I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but this has made some kind of sense to my body mind uh, as, as a useful way of relating to myself in the world. So with all of that preface, I'd say um, some people say that there's a, a multiverse, uh, that there are multiple universes. Some people say there aren't, but some people say there are. That, it makes a lot of sense to me that there would be multiple universes. That's part of my way of experiencing things these days. And 
something I had to encounter when I was writing a story was, what if this story actually exists somewhere and these characters actually exist somewhere? And that had a deep, almost ethical significance for me. I felt beholden to the characters that I was writing about and it became less clear. Am I making choices about their life or are they revealing themselves to me? Uh, it was helpful when writing to enter a view that, you know, I was just recording something that was happening. I was channeling something really that had already been written is the way that I held it. And, um, and from that perspective, uh, it's, uh, this is contentious scientifically to my understanding, but experientially it, it, it feels like the universes affect each other <laughs> that peeking into this world that I wrote about had some kind of effect on my life and this life that I find myself talking to you about, um, you know, in this earth, the year 2022 and so on. Um, that's not the world that I wrote about. I wrote about, you could say two or three, depending on how you count very different worlds. Um, but there was a kind of dialogue for me experientially between this person you're speaking with and my life and whatever I ended up writing about there. And uh, that is a lot of things to encounter, but jarring, enrapturing, delightful, terrifying. It's made me very cautious about, I, I was already very cautious about how I think and how I speak, but it's made me even more cautious about what I imagine in my mind, because um, what if my imaginations have some significance? What if that almost like generates a world that exists where what I imagine is so? I don't know. It could be like that. It might not be like that, but, uh, and it's a little scary to talk about this because I sound crazy uh, maybe, but I don't know. <laughs> it makes an internal sense to me um, right now at this point in my life. And um, you were asking sort of how do I curate my experience of what to read or watch. And um, this has been a process for me, but I would say briefly over time, what I've found is to trust my heart and what I'm drawn to and what feels resonant. So if something feels like, oh, no, thank you to listen to that. And if something feels like very exciting to listen to that, um, you know, this novel that I'm reading right now, I'm, I'm loving it. I want to just keep reading it and uh, find out what happens to the characters and the, the, the um, plot of it feels weighty and, and resonant for questions in my own life and things I'm wrestling with, even though it's, again, a very different world from this one we find ourselves in. Um, so, you know, again, sort of setting aside the question of reality and what's true, there is a kind of dialogue between what we either read about or watch in a piece of content that's already been created or even what we imagine in our own minds or might put into the world through, for example, writing a novel. Um, between all of that, between fictional worlds, fictional worlds, who knows, uh, and our experience, right? There's a union or meeting or encounter between, a, you know, we uh, digest it. And so what the best thing I found is to steer towards resonance, what I'm excited about, what I enjoy, what feels relevant and 
also to trust if something isn't exciting or just feels off, uh, then to set that aside. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful answer. Um, again, there's so much stuff to dive into. It's hard to choose. I would first want to say that you don't sound crazy at all, exactly because of the kind of introduction you gave, you know, and I like this focus on the usefulness of it for yourself as a model. Um, I've, I've struggled for a very long time with this idea of like, you know, metaphysics, basically the, the things that could exist, but that we don't know about. And I've come to the very simple conclusion that it's best if I don't think about those at all. Mm. And whatever works, works something like that. Whatever beliefs I hold that seem to work for me in this moment are okay. And I trust myself to gain new beliefs or filter out old ones as I go along. Um, so yeah, that has made me much lighter. <laughs> um, but but I like this idea of a of an experience that you had while writing that novella and and then being confronted with these ideas. That's that's a beautiful human experience, I think, of meeting your own creativity in that way. And yeah, that's very touching. Um, Can I say something about about that? Yeah, please. I think what I've arrived at for myself is not not to think about it, but to return again and again to what seems to be a simple fact to me, at least, that the universe is far vaster and more complex and more mysterious than any story I could tell about it or any uh, story someone could try to give me about it. And so to hold the stories that I encounter from others and also the stories that I find in my own head lightly uh, to not get stuck on them. I've had the experience so many times of seeing the world a certain way fervently even, and then days or weeks or months or years later saying, oh, that that actually wasn't complete. That wasn't true. And in fact, um, had edges where it was hurtful, things where it didn't make sense or hurt me or hurt other people. And so um, I think we can't entirely avoid telling ourselves stories about who we are and other people and the world, but it uh, behooves us to hold them lightly and uh, to be humble about what we know. And for me, it's a, an experience of reverence to notice how complex and mysterious the universe is. It's it's one of encountering deep beauty and uh, awe, noticing that. So that grounds me even as my mind is pulled towards various stories that I find compelling. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Again, many paths there, but I'm curious about one thing specifically, because this, this idea of, you know, trusting your heart, as you put it, like this, this resonance of, do I want this thing or not? That brings me to the question of desire. And I know desire is one of those concepts that in, in Buddhism gets thrown around a lot, a lot and has deep implications. I wonder if this idea of trusting your heart is similar to something like not judging your desire and acting on it, maybe? Or is that different for you? And if so, how would these things be different? The heart has also taken on a deep mystery for me, and I'm learning my own way of relating to it. But... Uh, I would say a significant part of that experience is uh, 
trusting the desires that I find. Um, I would say I experience it more as a pull or draw or attraction in a sort of magnetic sense where I'm interested in a person or a topic or a question or an idea or um, a road that I could go down with my life. And I just feel compelled to spend time with someone or to learn more about something or to try something new. And um, often it doesn't make sense. I don't understand why. Um, I started drawing last year, for example, and there, you know, I can look back at a few things, but more or less it was uh, kind of a new thing for me. Like I, I was like, why am I drawing? And then over time, it's it's that practice has just unfolded so beautifully for me. And I expect it will continue to do so for a long time, but I didn't really have a good conceptual account for a long time of why I might want to draw. And I was just like, well, I trust this. I feel drawn to make visual art. So here we go. And uh, I don't need to understand why or what purpose it will have in my life. I trust myself enough to know that if I feel pulled towards this, that it's worthwhile. And I've certainly had the same experience with people of, oh, I don't know how this person fits into my life, but I really like them. And I'm very curious about them and um, maybe physically attracted to them or, uh, you know, just simply enjoy their company. And I don't know yet what kind of relationship we'll have. Maybe they'll be a friend, maybe they'll be a lover or a partner. Maybe we'll uh, build something together, collaborate on something. Uh, maybe they'll be a kind of teacher for me and I'll learn something from them or who knows, there's so many relationships we can have with people, but uh, letting that unfold in its own time uh, and, and just trusting, yes, there's something that wants to happen here. Um, that's, that's uh, yeah, I'd say this is um, a bit of a deviation from Buddhism as I have received it in my own life. I mean, Buddhism is is very vast and I could speak at great length about my current understanding of it. And also that would not even be very knowledgeable, to be honest. Um, it's, it's so vast that it's hard for anyone to know uh, uh, everything that's been in that vast tradition. But um, it, it, I'm coming back to this question of uh, who am I and how do I relate to myself? The, a simple answer would be what you said earlier of, oh yeah, he's a Buddhist. I'm a Buddhist. Uh, but the, like, uh, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of other influences that don't even fit cleanly with Buddhism. And uh, I, I'm sure many Buddhists would look at me and the way I'm living my life and the beliefs that I have about the world, certainly things I've said in this podcast and say, yeah, that that's that's not a Buddhism that I recognize. I'm uh, very much um, a church of one, you might say. Mm, aren't we all? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, I remember this quote that I heard on a podcast a long time ago, uh, something like, wisdom is the acceptance of cognitive dissonance. Mm, beautiful. And that, yeah, that kind of stayed with me for a long time as I was unpacking that. And it brought me so much peace, as in that was for me the key to understand that I had been trying to build a coherent narrative of myself mm. and the world. Mm. And through this quote, I was able to let go of that mission. And I was just accepting like, yes, I am a collection of stories and they don't always fit together well. Or, you know, sometimes there are edges, like you say, that create tension. And that's okay. Mm. I don't have to have a complete understanding that is, um, well, it's impossible. We, we know, thanks to Wittgenstein and Gödel, that this whole venture of making everything 
logical within itself is impossible anyway. So mm -hmm. I, I don't have to try anymore. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for for bringing that. Yeah. Huh, uh, um, we're running out of time. There's so many more things I want to ask, but I want to take some time to also speak to your second point about the, the second way that you think of as relating to yourself, which is your direct experience of the now and, and how you react to it, right? And for me, well, I guess meditation is the one thing that comes to my mind where this is explored in its most pure form. And I wonder if that's true for you. I imagine you have a meditation practice, and if you could tell us a bit about what that looks like, that would be wonderful. Hmm. I don't feel that the word meditation, as I practiced it in my 20s, which I did extensively, encompasses my present practice or experience very well. Uh, on a sort of logistical level, I don't spend a lot of time in formal practice these days. It would probably be good if I did more. Uh, that's something maybe for me to work on, but uh, I don't do so much practice these days. I don't have a uh, sitting practice that I do every day for say half an hour or an hour or two hours as I've done at different points in my life or more. You know, um, I, I don't really have habits right now in my life because I wander so much. Um, I, I, it's important to me to try to be fluid and adaptive to the circumstances I find myself in as a pilgrim. And that means flowing with um, the, the people that I stay with and the place that I'm in and also the various demands that are asked of me in my life. Um, and I don't find that I'm able to really have habits of, oh, I go to bed at this time or wake up at this time or do this every day. Um, and that's, that's honestly a struggle for me right now. Uh, even certain practical things like eating, I've had some difficulty with uh, uh, how to make sure that I eat enough food every day, for example. Um, it's hard when I move from place to place and in different situations. Um, you know, I don't have a routine of, oh, I cook these things every day, for example. Um, so I, anyway, that said, my moment-to-moment -moment experience feels very rich, and there's a lot of things that I'm doing, again, very fluidly to meet the circumstances I find myself in, um, that even though I'm not spending time or as much time as I might like or as might be useful doing formal practice, there's constantly informal practice of uh, various things again, move, sort of moves that I'm doing, and uh, really trying to almost almost trying to stack as many moves as I can do at a time. I know a lot of moves, and then they're all useful to me. Some more useful than others in different circumstances, and then it becomes almost a game of how can I bring in as many of these as possible that would be useful right now. Um, so, uh, for example, expanding my awareness to include the room to include you, to include the thoughts in my mind, the feelings in my body. Um, another would be uh, sort of qualities of the heart. These are very important for me, not only noticing what I'm feeling emotionally, but also cultivating certain positive qualities, the Buddhist Brahma Viharas, for example, but not limited to them. Um, various things with my breathing or physical way that I hold my body, uh, 
all of these things are kind of running on either autopilot or semi-autopilot and, and trying to uh, weave them together into uh, a way of relating to this moment that's useful. Um, I think I think two qualities that I try to make foundational in this are are being present, present in this moment, returning again and again to the present, and then also being kind, kind both to myself and to others. So in this case, I'm really focusing on being kind to me and kind to you, right? For, for to, to give a simple example, just now I was talking about what might be kind of a character flaw for me of like, oh, I'm having a hard time with habits and practicing and even eating, right? Like you could look at that as a character flaw, but I don't think what I said was unkind to me. It was fair and uh, balanced, even if it was also accurate. Um, yeah, I'm having a hard time with those things. I could, you could imagine, for example, me beating myself up and saying all kinds of things that weren't very kind uh, or, or really useful to say in that. Um, but no, it's I, it's important to me to be kind to myself and to others. And in this case, in this moment now, in the present moment, I'm with me and I'm with you. So am I being present with you and myself? Am I being kind to myself and to you? Wonderful. Yeah, I, I love that. And I resonate with this very much. I think meditation, as you named it, also is a practice. And I love this word practice because it both means something that you do with a certain rhythm and regularity, but it also means you're practicing for something else, right? And I think the act of practice of meditation is to be present to life. That's kind of like what it means for me. Meditation allows me to sharpen my skills to then be more present to what actually unfolds in the world. Um, and I very much resonate with what you said about the difficulties of habits and routines while while traveling. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with that as well. I haven't meditated now for, I think, a good three weeks mm. because I've been traveling around Japan by train pretty much nonstop. And it's been wonderful and it's been strange because then I, there's this voice in my head, you know, that is maybe a bit judgmental sometimes about like, hey, shouldn't you be meditating? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, but also this is what's real right now, mm -hmm. right? And practicing that kindness, and I would almost call it like the compassion to myself of like understanding that I'm human and I react to the world around me and I'm fallible in many ways and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Tashin, this was a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. There are many more things that we could say, mm -hmm. I think. But let's let's kind of end it here with a final question. And that is very simply, was there a question that you perhaps would have loved to answer, but that I didn't ask you? Hmm. I could think of many questions that I would enjoy answering, but I don't feel that one immediately comes to mind. I feel very seen and held in the space that you've created. And uh, it's a, mm, I get a lot of opportunities in my life and my work to see how important it is to be seen both for myself and how nourished I am by that. And also for others, how nourished they are by that. And so it feels like a gift to have spent this time with you and to feel so seen. So thank you. And thank you so much. Where can people find you or follow you? Yes. Uh, well, my website is uh, tashin.com, T A 
S-S-H-I-N.com. And then uh, the other main place that I tend to spend a lot of time is on Twitter. Twitter, my handle is uh, Tashin Fogelman, T-A-S-S-H-I-N-F-O-G-L-E-M-A-N. I'm on other platforms as well, but uh, those are probably the two best places to find me. Wonderful. I'll put those in the notes and people can find you there. Tashin, this was delightful. Um, I wish you a beautiful continuation of your day. Thank you, friend. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks.